Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 98 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guest from the last episode, Chris Ramirez, the CEO and founder of Las Vegas Movie Tours, a brand new tour experience that takes visitors around the city, showing off some of the famous Vegas locations that have been immortalized on the big screen. We talked about Chris's background in the world of film, why filmmakers are attracted to Las Vegas as a movie location, what inspired him to create Las Vegas movie tours, and much more. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 97, Sin City Silver Screen, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here we go. On to the show. Admittedly, this episode of the podcast is a bit of a cheater in that it's not really a new episode per se. What you're about to hear is a slightly repackaged version of one of my favorite episodes of my spinoff podcast, Sin City Stories, which takes deep dives into Las Vegas history. And here is why I'm doing that. December 26, 2021 marks the 75th anniversary of the opening of one of the most iconic hotels and resorts in Las Vegas. Of course, I'm talking about the Flamingo. Part of the Vegas landscape since 1946, the Flamingo was the brainchild of a Los Angeles-based nightclub owner, restaurant owner, and entertainment news publisher who had it in his head that he wanted to build one of the most luxurious hotels and casinos Las Vegas had ever seen. But that is not what legend and pop culture would have you believe. And as you're about to find out, sometimes the truth is way more interesting than fiction. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the story of the fabulous Flamingo. William Richard Wilkerson, better known as Billy, was born in Nashville, Tennessee in 1890. As a young man, he left home and headed for Philadelphia to study medicine. But when his father died suddenly in 1912 with massive gambling debts, Wilkerson was forced to give up his studies and head home to find work to support both himself and his mother. Over the course of the next several years, Wilkerson spent time working in various roles in the film industry, including as a writer, producer, and director for a small film company. He managed a Nickelodeon theater that an old med school buddy had won as part of a World Series bet. He was a film distribution rep and district manager for Universal Pictures. He worked as a film salesman with the famous players Lasky Corporation. And he spent time writing ads and movie reviews with the New York-based trade publication Film Daily. Wilkerson moved to Hollywood and produced a film called Help Yourself, which he eventually brought back to New York and tried to shop around to the major studios there. 
Wilkerson had plans to create his own film studio, but to do that, he knew he needed the support of the big boys. While trying to woo the studios with his film, he needed to make money, and to do that, he jumped into a totally different industry. He opened a speakeasy. It was the time of Prohibition, and Wilkerson thought there was a big opportunity in the market. He wanted to open high-end, high-class establishments to attract high-end, high-class clientele, unlike the speakeasies that were operating at the time, located in opium dens and bordellos that attracted a rather seedy crowd. Eventually, with the help of New York City Mayor Jimmy Walker, Billy went on to run six extremely profitable speakeasies. However, it was during his time running the speakeasies that one of Wilkerson's big vices started to come to light. Like his father, he loved to gamble. And as quickly as he was making money, he was losing it, playing cards inside his very own establishments. After a series of police raids on his speakeasies, and knowing that he was now on law enforcement's radar, Wilkerson decided enough was enough, and he walked away from the business. This put a sense of urgency in his plan to launch Wilkerson Studios. Unfortunately, the studio moguls were having none of it. He'd screened his film for every major studio, and they all passed on it. Rather than placing blame on the fact that the film was a dud, Wilkerson incorrectly believed that religion played a part in the failure. Many studio heads were of the Jewish faith, and Billy felt that they'd never allow a non-Jew to compete with them or be a part of their industry. As such, Wilkerson's hope of owning his own movie studio was finished. Billy's dreams quickly turned to thoughts of revenge, and he made it his mission to crush the studios and the monopoly they held on the movie business. His new idea was to create the first daily trade paper for the motion picture industry in Hollywood. Wilkerson knew that with the industry making the move from New York to Los Angeles, demand for such a paper would be huge. And from his time working on film daily, he also knew that a trade paper could have big effects on an industry. One bad review could destroy a movie. And Wilkerson believed that this was his chance to get back at the people who destroyed his dreams. Flash forward to the summer of 1930, and Billy Wilkerson was settling into the West Coast life. And after establishing his printing corporation and hiring the necessary staff, on September 3rd, 1930, he published the very first issue of The Hollywood Reporter. Known as an aggressive reporter on the Hollywood film scene, Wilkerson often clashed with the studio heads and pressured them to advertise in the newspaper with threats of bad reviews. The Hollywood Reporter would go on to become the most influential trade publication in the film industry. By the mid-1930s, with the paper successfully established, Wilkerson decided he wanted to branch out into a new business. He wanted to own and run nightclubs. But not just any nightclubs. He wanted to focus on the hard-partying Hollywood set that he'd become close with, and he wanted the clubs to be upscale and exclusive. In January of 1934, Wilkerson opened the Café Trocadero, later known simply as The Troke, where A-listers came to see and be seen. But there was more to the Trocadero than just glamour and glitz. There was a whiff of danger hanging over both the club and its owner. As mentioned, Billy Wilkerson was a hardcore gambling addict, and the Troke was home to a secret back room where he'd play high-stakes games of poker with the likes of Samuel Goldwyn and other movie moguls. It was also here where Wilkerson gained the friendship and protection of gangsters Johnny Rosselli and Tony Cornero. 
After he grew tired of the troke and a suspicious fire destroyed the kitchen, Billy sold the property and opened a new supper club further up Sunset Boulevard called Ciro's, named after a bistro where he liked to gamble in Monte Carlo. With exterior design by George Vernon Russell and interior design by Tom Douglas, Wilkerson once again took aim at the showy Hollywood elite. There were phone jacks at every table so calls could be taken in the club, and a spotlight lit up the entrance for every star who graced the club. And of course, there was a hidden gambling parlor in the joint, installed at the urging of Wilkerson's gangster pal Johnny Rosselli. But Rosselli wasn't the only mob regular at Ciro's. The legendary Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, who was a friend, fan, and future business partner of Billy's, also frequented the club. Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was born February 28, 1906, in Williamsburg, a neighborhood in the borough of Brooklyn in New York City. He was the second of five children, born to a Jewish family that emigrated to the United States from what was, at the time, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. His family was extremely poor, with his parents working odd jobs for meager wages that usually left very little for the family. As such, at an early age, young Benjamin jumped into a life of crime. At the age of 12, he joined a street gang on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and committed mainly thefts until he met up with fellow future mobster Mo Sedway. The pair developed a protection racket where Siegel would charge pushcart owners a dollar for insurance. If they didn't pay, Siegel would set their carts on fire. It was during this time that Siegel gained the nickname he'd eventually come to hate. He had a reputation for being short-tempered, and people described him as crazier than a bedbug, hence the name Bugsy. During his teenage years, Siegel had become friends with Meyer Lansky. When Lansky formed a small mob whose activities included things like gambling and car theft, who was the first person that Lansky recruited for his gang? Bugsy Siegel. Siegel became involved with bootlegging all over the East Coast, and he worked as the hitman for Lansky's mob. And as a bonus, Lansky would hire him out to other crime families. Together, the pair formed the Bugs and Meyer mob, which had a long resume of crime, including car theft, truck hijacking, protection rackets, extortion, stolen goods, illegal gambling, and of course, murder. By the late 1920s, Bugsy and Meyer had ties to future mob bosses Charles Lucky Luciano and Frank Costello. Under Luciano's orders, Siegel was involved in the killing of two high-profile mob bosses, Joe Masseria in April of 1931 and Salvatore Maranzano in September of 1931. Following Maranzano's death, Luciano created The Commission, which was established to divide mafia territories and prevent future gang wars. As such, Siegel and Lansky dissolved the Bugs and Meyer mob and, with the help of their associates, created the enforcement wing of the National Crime Syndicate, or what the media dubbed Murder Incorporated. After his involvement in multiple gangland murders and a failed attempt on his life, Bugsy found himself under the microscope with law enforcement in New York City. At that point, Meyer Lansky suggested a move west to California to get out of the spotlight. 
Siegel slipped nicely into life in Los Angeles. Once there, he helped to build several rackets in a booming Southern California. He connected with boxer-turned-gangster Mickey Cohn and set up gambling dens and offshore gambling ships while consolidating the existing prostitution, drug, and bookmaking operations. Bugsy even made deals to bring the race wire to California to help get critical gambling information to the West Coast. Bugsy also had his sights set on Hollywood. His wealth took him far in California. He bought a large home in Beverly Hills. He frequented elite parties and was able to cultivate friendships with some of the A-listers of the time, including Cary Grant, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, and Gene Harlow, who would eventually go on to become his daughter's godmother. He even toyed with the idea of becoming an actor himself, regularly visiting movie sets, getting headshots done, and even going as far as to set up a screen test. It was also in Hollywood where Siegel ran one of his biggest rackets. He'd extort money out of the big Hollywood studios by taking over the various trade unions, including the Teamsters. He'd then get them to stage strikes and force the studios to pay him off to get the unions back to work. But not everything was coming up roses for Bugsy in California. In 1939, Bugsy was part of the crew ordered to kill fellow mobster Harry Big Greeny Greenberg. Greenberg had threatened to become a police informant, so unfortunately, he had to go. One of the crew, Albert Tannenbaum, also a member of the aforementioned Murder Incorporated, confessed to the murder and agreed to testify against Bugsy. Siegel was implicated in the crime and the case went to trial in 1941. However, after the death of two key state witnesses and no further witnesses to the crime came forward, Tannenbaum's testimony was dismissed and Siegel was acquitted due to insufficient evidence. But thanks to the publicity surrounding the case, the damage was done and Siegel's reputation in California was destroyed. However, in 1945, Bugsy found an opportunity to reinvent his wrecked reputation by going into business in Nevada, the casino business. By the mid-1940s, Billy Wilkerson's gambling was getting out of hand. The track, craps, and poker were his favorite pastimes. Billy could often be found playing high-stakes games with Hollywood's elites, where the minimum bets were $25,000. In 1944, he'd reportedly lost over three-quarters of a million dollars playing in several Vegas casinos. And during a conversation with friend and movie producer Joe Schneck, Wilkerson admitted he had a gambling problem. Schneck's advice? Be on the other side of the table if you're going to suffer those kinds of losses. Build a casino. Own the house. Seemed reasonable to Billy. In December of 1944, Wilkerson tried to stem his gambling losses by leasing the El Rancho Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. He paid then-owner Joe Drown $50,000 for a six-month lease on the property. But Billy had even greater ambitions on his mind. He was always thinking big and targeting the elites. From the speakeasies he ran in New York to the clubs in Los Angeles, Billy always wanted to appeal to the upper crust of society. 
But he knew that if he was going to build in Vegas, he needed something much grander and larger in scale than he originally envisioned or had ever created before. He wanted something more than just a casino. He needed something that he could use to tempt the Beverly Hills set to come across the state line to Nevada. In late January of 1945, Billy spotted a for sale sign on a vacant 33-acre parcel of land south of the El Rancho and Last Frontier. The land belonged to Margaret M. Folsom. And through his attorney, after a tough negotiation, Wilkerson bought the land for $84,000. Billy wanted the resort to be all things to everyone, and he wanted it to be extraordinary and unique. He wanted a gambling mecca that emulated the expensive European casinos and hotels you'd find somewhere like Monaco, as opposed to the rustic desert motels that existed in Las Vegas at the time. However, he also wanted the resort to be a quiet oasis for those who didn't wish to gamble. If a person just wanted to relax, the resort would be a home away from home, featuring fine dining, high-quality shows, and outdoor activities. In late February of 1945, Wilkerson brought architect George Vernon Russell and decorator Tom Douglas to his office in California, both of whom had worked extensively on his various Hollywood projects. It was during this initial hours-long meeting that Billy outlined his vision for the resort. He wanted to fill the entire 33 acres with a massive complex that included a casino, showroom, nightclub, bar and lounge, restaurant, cafe, luxury hotel, shopping, and a health club featuring steam rooms and a gym. And that was just inside. Outside, Wilkerson wanted private bungalows, a swimming pool, tennis, badminton, handball, and squash courts, as well as a nine-hole golf course, a shooting range, and horse stables. And Wilkerson planned for his hotel to be the first one in the United States to be equipped with the latest innovation in indoor cooling, air conditioning. Billy also had ideas about how he wanted the casino designed. He wanted it to be as easy as possible for people to lose their money. The layout he had in mind was radical at the time and different from every other Las Vegas casino. Wilkerson wanted the casino at the center of the hotel to act as a hub. No guest would be able to move anywhere in the complex without passing through the casino. There'd be no windows, no clocks, and the lights would be permanently dimmed, meaning that time could pass unnoticed and gamblers would have no idea how long they'd been playing. Billy wanted to make gambling as comfortable as possible, so he ordered custom tables with curved cushioned edges, and chairs and stools would be mandatory at every table. Once he had all these ideas down, there was the question of the name for this luxurious resort and casino. Time for some myth-busting. The long-standing legend is that the Flamingo took its name from Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend, Virginia Hill. According to pop culture and movies, Virginia Hill's nickname was The Flamingo because of her red hair and long legs. And when Bugsy took over the project, something we'll get to later, he named it in her honor. Fact of the matter is, the resort was named The Flamingo Club way before Bugsy and Virginia got involved. In most cases, Wilkerson named his projects prior to being completed, and the inspiration for the names usually came from his world travels. In this case, after considering several different exotic bird names and variations on those names, he settled on a magnificent pink bird he'd seen during a trip to Florida. Billy then commissioned famed Hollywood graphic artist Burt Worth to design the logo for The Flamingo Club. 
As Billy's plans grew, so did the budget. Estimates to build and complete the Flamingo as Billy envisioned were pegged at just under $1.2 million. Wilkerson accepted this figure, but he didn't have the cash to cover the costs. He managed to secure loans from the Bank of America as well as billionaire friend Howard Hughes, but he was still about $400,000 short. Billy took up old habits to try to get the cash, risking $150,000 of his own money to try to win the 400 grand. He lost it all. Wilkerson tried scaling back construction to cut costs. He looked to his Tinseltown friends, offering them cut-rate advertising in The Hollywood Reporter in exchange for surplus lumber and metal. Wilkerson even went as far as threatening studio heads with bad reviews if they wouldn't provide him with material. Unfortunately, these efforts failed, and by January of 1946, the project had ground to a halt. However, just as Billy Wilkerson was reaching the end of his financial rope, gangster Mo Sedway brought the Flamingo Project to the attention of his boss, Meyer Lansky. Sedway thought it might be a good opportunity for the Eastern Syndicate to expand their operations in the desert, especially as he and his partner Gus Greenbaum were already involved in running the El Cortez Hotel. Lansky was hesitant at first, but once he saw the scale of Wilkerson's vision and the potential for huge profits, he changed his mind. In late February 1946, Wilkerson was walking the abandoned Flamingo construction site with one of his builders when he was approached by a man who identified himself as G. Harry Rothberg, a businessman from the East Coast. Rothberg said he represented a firm in New York that knew Wilkerson was broke but was willing to invest in the project so he could complete it. In exchange for $1 million, Wilkerson would retain a one-third share in the project and have full creative control. When the club was finished, within a one-year deadline, Wilkerson would be the sole operator and manager with all other involved partners being silent. That contract was signed on February 26, 1946, and the ink on that deal was barely dry before Mo Sedway and Gus Greenbaum showed up at the construction site. And they weren't alone. The man accompanying them presented himself to Wilkerson as his new partner. That man? Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Billy Wilkerson and Ben Siegel had been friendly since the mid-1930s when Siegel had been a regular at Wilkerson's club Ciro's on the Sunset Strip. Early in their partnership, things went well. Wilkerson and Siegel met almost every day. Wilkerson passed tasks on to Siegel, and Siegel provided Wilkerson with suggestions about the Flamingo, which he accepted readily. Siegel also proved incredibly helpful in obtaining black market construction materials through his personal channels, and the post-war shortages that had previously plagued Wilkerson were no longer a problem. However, as the project progressed, Bugsy began to resent Billy Wilkerson's talent and vision. He became intimidated, jealous, and paranoid. And as time went on, Siegel regressed into the role he was all too well known for, the big shot. Siegel started making decisions on his own. He told work crews that he'd been put in charge and he ordered changes that conflicted with the blueprints. He also started taking credit for Wilkerson's vision, boasting that the Flamingo had been his idea. Things came to a head when Siegel began demanding more involvement in the project. He didn't want to be a watchdog. He wanted to be hands-on. 
In order to appease Siegel, Wilkerson agreed to split the project 50-50. He'd oversee the building of the casino, restaurant, and shops, while Siegel would manage the construction of the hotel side of the Flamingo. With no communication between the two sides of the project, things began to fall apart quickly. Construction costs were skyrocketing, and within a month, Siegel had blown through his share of the budget and was demanding money from Wilkerson's share. As more time passed, Siegel's ambitions grew into full-blown greed. Bugsy decided the agreement with Wilkerson was a mistake and he wanted a change so that he had full control over the Flamingo. Siegel bought out Wilkerson's creative participation with corporate stock, an additional 5% ownership in the operation. And on June 20th, 1946, he created the Nevada Project Corporation of California, naming himself President. Siegel was also the largest stockholder in the operation, meaning the project was now his baby and the Flamingo was essentially a mob-run operation. The first thing Siegel did was fire all of Wilkerson's people. He hired new architects, he redesigned portions of the project, and all the interior decorating responsibility was shifted to his then-girlfriend, Virginia Hill. Siegel, however, was not a good manager. All of Bugsy's changes to create his vision of the Flamingo were costing a lot of money. He flew in workers and paid them top dollar. He made expensive changes, including rebuilding the boiler room and kitchen and installing separate sewer systems for each bathroom in the hotel. Siegel also found himself under the watch of the FBI after he convinced federal officials to let him get his hands on building materials that were in short supply following World War II. And the victim of profiteering, Siegel purchased wood, pipes, and other fixtures on the black market at high prices, only to have them stolen off the construction site and resold to him just days later. All of this resulted in huge cost overruns, upwards of a million dollars over budget, a massive amount of money for that time. The boys in the city syndicate were getting antsy, and most of them had had enough of Bugsy and the Flamingo. They knew the numbers, they saw what it was costing, and they were convinced that either Siegel or Virginia Hill were skimming money off the project. Luckily for Siegel, he had an ally. Mob boss and childhood friend Meyer Lansky stood up for Bugsy and encouraged the syndicate to be patient and see if the Flamingo would be profitable. If it was, no problem. Bugsy could pay them back. Siegel was starting to feel the heat, though. So, despite the fact that the Flamingo was still months away from being complete, Bugsy went ahead and held the hotel's grand opening. December 26, 1946. It seemed that Siegel had done pretty much everything right to prepare for the Flamingo's grand opening. The casino was fully staffed, restaurant and bar workers were ready to serve, and the showroom was booked with famous entertainers, including legendary comedian Jimmy Durant. On the first of three planned opening nights, Bugsy was there to greet his guests, dressed impeccably, of course, in a black tuxedo with a pink carnation. At his side, girlfriend Virginia Hill, with her hair dyed platinum blonde. In spite of a surprise rainstorm in Los Angeles that had grounded the private aircraft Siegel had arranged, several of the celebrities he'd invited made the trip, including actor George Raft, actress Vivian Blaine, and theater owner Sid Grauman. Cars jammed the highway outside, and guests walked past spotlights aimed skyward as they entered the resort as if they were attending a lavish Hollywood premiere. Once inside, they marveled at the green leather walls, thick carpeting, red upholstered furniture and plush bar lounge beside rows of slot machines. The place was so full that it was a struggle to make it through the casino. 
Jimmy Durant's showroom performance, where he was accompanied by band leader Xavier Cugat, was a smash hit and drew cheers from the sold-out audience. And according to people who were there, there was a lot of $100 chip action at the gaming tables, meaning cash was flowing big time. Sounds like a success, right? Wrong. Siegel's fortunes declined steadily over the course of the next few opening nights. The A-list celebs he'd invited, including Lucille Ball, Ava Gardner, and Veronica Lake, were no-shows in spite of having private transportation at their disposal. Adding insult to injury, the cash that high rollers were risking at the tables wasn't staying in the casino. The Flamingo was said to have lost upwards of a half a million dollars over the course of several days. And to top it off, because the Flamingo's hotel rooms weren't complete at opening, guests had to go find other accommodations, where they likely went and gambled away their winnings from the Flamingo. The casino continued to hemorrhage money through New Year's Day, and by late January of 1947, Siegel made the decision to temporarily shut down so he could save money while completing the hotel, as well as the many planned opulent amenities the Flamingo was meant to have, including the Olympic-sized pool, golf course, and tennis, badminton, and handball courts. Bugsy took out a full-page newspaper ad announcing the Flamingo would shut its doors from February 6th to March 1st to finish construction. Flash forward to late March. Upon reopening, the Flamingo now had hotel rooms, activities, and amenities superior to its competitors elsewhere in Las Vegas. And the good news? It looked like the Flamingo's fortunes had taken a turn for the better. Within just two months of reopening, Siegel had shown a profit of over $300,000. More of Hollywood's elites, including Gary Cooper, Wallace Berry, and Susan Hayward, were making their way east to Vegas, generating lots of great publicity for the resort. Unfortunately for Bugsy, it wasn't enough to save him. His arrogance and independence in running the Flamingo Project had pushed the bosses to their limits. And unbeknownst to him, the decision had already been made back in February, before the Flamingo's reopening. Siegel had to go. Just before 11 p.m. on the evening of June 20th, 1947, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was sitting on the couch of the L.A. home he shared with his girlfriend, Virginia Hill. As he was reading a copy of the Los Angeles Times, shots rang out as an unknown assailant fired at him through the window with a 30 caliber military M1 carbine rifle. Nine shots were fired, with four hitting Siegel, twice in the chest and twice in the head, with one of the shots blowing his left eye out of its socket. And that was the end of Bugsy's reign at the Flamingo. Immediately following Siegel's death, and I do mean immediately, as in minutes afterwards, Moe Sedway, Gus Greenbaum, and mob associate Morris Rosen walked into the Flamingo and announced to employees that they were in charge now. Rosen put together a group of investors, including Sedway and Greenbaum, as well as mob boss Meyer Lansky, to raise $3.9 million to buy the property from Siegel's Nevada Projects Corporation. Meanwhile, Billy Wilkerson, remember him? had been hiding in Paris for several months out of fear for his life after an encounter with Siegel in December of 1946, where Bugsy had publicly threatened to kill him. Billy had thought about returning to the U.S. in late May of 1947, but his general manager had received an anonymous phone call advising him to tell Wilkerson to stay in Paris until, quote, it was over. 
Nearly a month after the call, on the morning of June 21st, Wilkerson bought a newspaper, sat down at a sidewalk cafe, and ordered his favorite beverage, a Coke. When he unfolded the newspaper, there on the front page was the news of Bugsy's murder. Wilkerson immediately returned to his hotel, packed his bags, and was back in Los Angeles on June 23rd. Under their partnership, Sedway, Greenbaum, and Lansky turned the Flamingo into an extremely successful enterprise. In 1948 alone, they turned a $4 million profit. The fabulous Flamingo, as it was now known, featured lavish accommodations and amenities, including comfortable air-conditioned rooms, lush gardens, and beautiful swimming pools, and was often credited with creating the complete experience, as opposed to merely being a casino and hotel like the other properties in Las Vegas. Since then, the Flamingo has gone through numerous ownership changes. In 1960, it was sold for $10.5 million to a group of investors with reputed ties to a Miami crime syndicate. Famed Las Vegas real estate mogul Kirk Kerkorian, who went on to own the legendary International Hotel, MGM Movie Studios, and the original MGM Grand Hotel, which is now Bally's, acquired the property in 1967. He, in turn, sold it to the Hilton Corporation in 1972, which renamed it the Flamingo Hilton. And in 1998, Hilton spun off their gaming properties as Park Place Entertainment, which would eventually become Caesars Entertainment. In 2000, the Flamingo Hilton was renamed the Flamingo Las Vegas. And in 2005, Harris Entertainment purchased Caesars Entertainment, and the Flamingo was part of the Harris Group. That is, until Harris Entertainment changed its name to Caesars Entertainment Corporation in 2010. And to this day, Flamingo Las Vegas remains part part of the Caesars Entertainment Corporation. Also, throughout its over 70-year history, the Flamingo has undergone extensive renovations and upgrades. Being that the original hotel had just 105 rooms built courtyard style, a long string of remodels and expansions began in 1953, but the largest ones came after the Hilton Corporation bought the Flamingo. They embarked on a massive plan of growth that added 500-room towers in 1977, 1980, 1982, and 1986. In 1990, a 728-room tower was built, and in 1993, a 908-room tower was constructed. The expansion in 1993 required the tearing down of the original bungalows so that the pool area could be increased to a huge 15 acres. Also demolished was the four-story Oregon building at the back of the property, where Bugsy himself had a suite on the top floor, which featured bulletproof glass and a secret escape tunnel. That building was replaced with the 200-unit Hilton Grand Vacations timeshare tower. As such, sadly, none of the original architecture or construction of the Flamingo exists today, and the only real piece of nostalgia is in a small brick shrine located directly across from the Garden Wedding Chapel in the Flamingo Habitat. There you'll find a commemorative plaque that reads, in part, on this site, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel's original Flamingo Hotel stood from December 26, 1946 until December 14, 1993. The plaque then goes on to tell the story of the legendary Bugsy Suite and his murder in Los Angeles. By the way, that murder is still unsolved. <laughs> 
Billy Wilkerson, on the other hand, met a somewhat more natural demise. After returning to Los Angeles following Bugsy's killing, he continued running The Hollywood Reporter. Although he returned to Vegas often, he never once stayed at the Flamingo. And in 1951, after the birth of his son, he quit gambling. Wilkerson had been in relatively poor health through the latter half of the 1950s, likely due to decades of excessive smoking. In 1960, he sold off his remaining shares at the Flamingo. And on September 2, 1962, just one day short of The Hollywood Reporter's 32nd anniversary, he died of a heart attack in his Bel Air, California home. I hope you've enjoyed this trek into the history of one of the most historic spots on the Vegas Strip. If you want to learn more about Billy Wilkerson, Bugsy Siegel, and the Flamingo Hotel, check out the show notes for Volume 3 of Sin City Stories at SinCityStoriesPod.com. There you'll find articles, photos, and much more. You can also find that link in the show notes for this episode at JeffDoesVegas.com. That wraps up another episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas, or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. The Jeff Does Vegas podcast is a Walker New Media production. 